Happy New Year, everyone. What are you hoping for in this new year, in 2020? As we put uh, 2019 behind us, as we put the Patriots behind us, what are you looking for? I'll tell you what I'm asking God for in 2020. There was a clue in the worship. Joy. In fact, um, we did not collaborate. I, I mean, Evan didn't know what... I mean, he knows I'm preaching on a series on joy. He didn't know what I'm going to be speaking specifically on this morning. It's quite amazing, actually, how the songs just... And, and the scripture reading and everything just uh, is going to be in my message. Uh, I think this is something that uh, God is wanting to do. Um, and that's why I'm starting this series. Uh, actually, we're going to be concluding our recent series on the book of Nehemiah, and it's Nehemiah who's going to be introducing us to this new series on joy, uh, because it was Nehemiah who first revealed the secret that it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. It's the joy of the Lord. Uh, is your strength. And as I was starting to think about that, uh, all that that meant, I really felt the Holy Spirit impress upon me that this was something that the Lord wants to impart to us. That he wants us to know joy more and more um, in our lives. Do you want that? Do you need joy in your life? Um, I think others have had similar impressions about this. In fact, Christy uh, prophesied just recently about a season of jubilee, which I think su suggests a season of jubilation. Uh, that word, the Latin word jubilare, means shouts of joy. And uh, do you find yourself shouting with joy? Is that something you're known for? Are you a joyful person? I don't think it's something I'm particularly known for. Why are you laughing? Because <laughs> I'm wearing black. Is that what you said? <laughs> I'm not exuding joy. Um, if you were to ask my children or grandchildren for some adjectives to describe me, I don't think joyful would be among them. Grumpy, maybe. You ask my eldest granddaughter, uh, she would say, I'm a bit like Peppa Pig's dad. <laughs> Could be a bit grumpy. I don't want to be known for that. I don't think God wants me to be known for that. When you see how many times the word joy and rejoice appear in the Bible, I think it's pretty evident God wants us to know joy in our lives, right? There's a reason why the angel came and said to the shepherds, we bring tidings of great joy. And even before Jesus came, Nehemiah had good reason to say to the people of God, the joy of the Lord is your strength. God is wanting to strengthen us, I believe, with joy. He wants us to share in his joy. And um, so that's where we're going. And, and listen, it's not just for our sakes. It's for the sake of the world around us. Last week, Gareth 
uh, made the comment that, you know, today, you know, our generation may seem to be, you know, the, the, the better off and, and the most richer and healthiest generation than any other generation before us, and yet at the same time, our society seems to be characterized by anxiety, disillusionment, fear, depression, you know, regarding the future and so on. In fact, he quoted the Wall Street Journal, a psycho, leading psychotherapist who said, today, the US is a competitive, scary, and stressful place that idealizes perfectionism, materialism, selfishness, and virtual rather than real human connection. Goes on to describe our society as narcissistic and lonely, and that in an age of broken families, and distracted parents, that anxiety and depression are now only too common among children and adolescents, and sadly, sometimes with disastrous consequences. And sadly, it's also somewhat common in the church as well. You know, the same uh, fears and anxieties that pervade our society can be found in the church. And it's not what God intends for his people. Right? We are meant to be the joy of the whole earth. That's what it says in Psalm 48. That's how it describes Jerusalem. The joy of the whole earth, because it was the place where God's presence dwelt. And so if that was true for them then, how much more so with the coming of Jesus and the sending of his Spirit to dwell in us, should we be known as the joy of the whole earth? Don't you think? And that's why as we enter into a new decade, right, the 2020s, with all the uncertainty that there is in the world, uh, where others may be feeling anxious and fearful uh, or disillusioned about the future, God wants his people, he wants us to be characterized by joy. That's why I'm doing a whole series on this, right? One message isn't going to do it, and we need the Holy Spirit's help. Uh, let's be praying for the Holy Spirit to help us in this. My prayer is that in this church, all fear will be gone and replaced by joy. Amen? I pray that any pessimism will be replaced by confidence jubilation. Amen? I pray that anxiety will give way to rejoicing. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Philippians 4.4. 4. He said this, Rejoice in the Lord. When? Always. When should we rejoice in the Lord? Always. And just to underline the importance of that, he says again, I will say, rejoice. Well, why? Well, because the Lord is near, he says. He's drawing close to us. He is near to us. In fact, he's knocking on the door. Because he wants to come in and, and eat with us and us with him. He wants to nourish us and strengthen us with joy so that we will not be anxious about anything. Now listen, this is not to ignore the very real difficulties and issues that we may be personally facing or that exist in our society today. To be joyful is not like we're fiddling while Rome burns, right? To use a common expression. Uh, no, joy is God's provision to us in the midst of it all. 
all right? So, with that in mind, let's now turn, please, to the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be looking at chapter 8. And if I can just set the scene for you. Um, for several decades, Jerusalem had been anything but joyful. Uh, since the Babylonians had destroyed it in 586 BC, the city had lain in ruins, while God's people in exile were weeping by the rivers of Babylon. When the Jewish people were eventually allowed back to rebuild their city, it was Nehemiah who led the efforts in rebuilding the city walls. And it wasn't without difficulty, as we've seen in that series. Right? The huge piles of rubble they were facing threatened to overwhelm them. Uh, their enemies on every side were trying to stop the rebuilding project. And yet, in spite of all of that, uh, God's people were enabled to rebuild those walls in 52 days, miraculously, uh, with the help of their gods. But in chapter 8, the building project now shifts from the rebuilding of the walls to the rebuilding of God's people. Because you see, because they've been in exile so long in a foreign land, they needed to understand once again their identity as God's people. Um, so they asked Ezra, their priests, and their teacher to bring the book of Moses, to bring the word of God, and to read it to them. And if you read there at the beginning of chapter 8, it says they all paid careful attention to what was being said as Ezra read from early morning until midday. Okay, you're getting off lightly here this morning. He also appointed a number of other priests, the Levites, to instruct the people, so to help them, it says, to clearly understand what God's Word said. Again, just underlining there the importance of, you know, of qualified teachers. And we're going to read now from verse 9, verse 9 of Nehemiah 8. This is what it says. Let's read together. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat. In other words, eat rich food, drink sweet wine, and send portions of it to anyone who has nothing ready. In other words, share what you have with those who don't have anything. Can I just comment, right, just stop for a second here. Uh, praise God for the generosity of this church. Uh, we took up a benevolence offering through December as well as uh, for Lydia's House of Hope. And um, quite apart from the thousands that were given in items, products to bless Lydia's House of Hope and gift cards and everything else, you know, we'd been asking God for $20,000 for our benevolence fund. I thought it was a bit of a stretch. Uh, but $24,000 was given in just for that. You know, thank you and praise God. Right? That's uh, sharing with those who, who, you know, who don't have anything. Why this day is holy to the Lord, he says. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites, they calmed all the people said, be quiet, stop weeping. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And so all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they were told to do so? No, it says, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. May we understand the words being declared to us today. Now, as they heard God's word, and they came to understand what it was saying, it led them, first of all, to weep and to grieve, but then it led them to make great rejoicing. Why was that? Let me just give you a quick summary of that story they would have heard from God's word, how centuries before God had chosen this man named Abraham to be the father of their family, how as a people they were to have a special relationship with God and to possess a special land because God had promised Abraham that he would bless him and his descendants and that all the other people groups on earth would be blessed through them. But within a few generations, his descendants had become slaves in Egypt. So God, who is faithful to keep his promises, rescued his people, led them in an exodus through the wilderness. But before bringing them into the land that he had promised them, God made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. It was a confirmation of the covenant he'd made with their father Abraham. Except this time it was more like a marriage with God as the husband, making his vows of everlasting love for his bride. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy 7, 7, it says that the Lord set his affection on them and he chose them for himself, not because they were somehow better than all the other peoples, but because he loved them. He loved them because he loved them. And so all the people there were gathered in his presence on that sacred, holy day, to hear the vows, the word of God, with Moses making it clear to them what it meant to be a faithful bride. And that is the picture that Jeremiah paints for us when he talks about God taking Israel by the hand, leading her out of Egypt, and how he made this covenant of love in marriage with them. It's a beautiful picture. And yet, tragically, it got ruined. And God goes on to tell us why that is in Jeremiah 31, verse 32. He says, Because they broke my covenant, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Because you see, in the following years, time after time, God's people showed themselves to be an unfaithful bride, rejecting their good husbands for worthless lovers. And after centuries of God showing them mercy and patience and after many warnings and pleading with them to return to him, God eventually sent his bride away. Jerusalem lay in ruins and its people were in exile for many years because of their adultery. And yet God refused to divorce his people. In his mercy, because of his great faithfulness, he promised to one day make a new covenant with them. But first, he would bring them back home. And that's where we find them in Nehemiah 8. Having rebuilt their city from the ruins, now it was their relationship with God that was needing to be rebuilt. And so they gathered together, as their ancestors had done centuries before at Mount Sinai, to hear God's word on this sacred holy day. And so in some ways, this was like a vow renewal. You know how some couples, they have a ceremony to renew their wedding vows, don't they? 
the vows maybe they made to each other sort of decades before. Uh, why do people do that? Well, for some it's like a celebration of their marriage. Um, they're kind of declaring to one another and to the world that they have no regrets, they'd be happy to do it all over again, and so they do. For others, however, it's because maybe they've been through a difficult period in their relationship and they want to reaffirm their commitment to one another. Now, to call Israel's unfaithfulness a difficult period in her marriage is an understatement. And yet here they were at a vow renewal with their God, being reminded by Ezra the priest of all those sacred promises that had been made in love centuries before, but at the same time being reminded by their history of how they and their ancestors had broken every single one of those vows. And even the, the stones around them in the wall were testaments of that, each one having to be uh, retrieved from a pile of rubble that had been caused by their infidelity. And so as they heard and they understood all of this, we're told all the people wept. What we see pictured here is a grief-stricken bride, remorseful, ashamed of her past, repentant. And you know, a proper, a proper understanding of God's Word should lead us to repentance. You know, when we come to see ourselves mirrored in here, and we come to see how flawed we really are, um, you know, when we uh, recognize so often we're just too self-absorbed or maybe too busy on our phones to give attention to our God, to the one who gives us life, or maybe that we can come to church on a Sunday and sing, Lord, I give you my heart. And yet on Monday, so easily give our hearts to worthless things because of our own selfish desires, hurting ourselves and often hurting others in the process. Now that should cause us to grieve. And that's not a bad thing to recognize that, you know. In fact, true joy often comes through repentance. And so as we gather here today in this place and we look back over the past year of our lives, or over maybe the past few years of our lives, there may well be things that we regret. You know, there may be things that you are remorseful about. But what I want you to notice from our text today is that as Ezra read God's word, and that the people reviewed their history and were filled with remorse, you do not hear the husband saying, well, if only you'd listened, maybe things could be a bit different. You know, you need to change. You need to do better if we're going to have a future together. You don't hear that. We don't hear the priests who represented God rubbing the bride's nose in her sin. What do we hear? Do not grieve. Three times, in fact, we hear, do not weep. Do not mourn. Do not grieve. This is a day holy to the Lord. In fact, there was going to come a time of confession and recommitment later on. That came later. That was in chapter 9. But for now, he said, this is a day holy to the Lord. Uh, it was a holy day. It was a holiday. Because according to their Jewish calendar, it was time for one of their great festivals, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, where in the past they would have reenacted with great joy what God had done for them in their exodus from Egypt. And so that's why the people were told to dry their tears, 
don't grieve. They were told, and it says that they all went and made great rejoicing as they participated in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, does that sound a bit odd to you? It does to me. How could they go from weeping to great rejoicing? Were they kind of just going through the motions because of the, fest the festival was upon them? Shouldn't they maybe have delayed the festivities while all the people confessed their sin, uh, made a recommitment to God, and maybe once they'd done their part and maybe found God's favor again, then perhaps they could afford to rejoice a little, you know? That's not what happened, though, was it? And I think for good reason. I think this is telling us something. This is important. There is an order to these events. There was repentance or turning to God, then rejoicing, and then recommitment. But why? How could they rejoice and be so full of joy when they've just come face to face with all their failings? How was that possible? Well, we're told there in verse 12, it's because they understood the words that were declared to them. Uh, so the same words that had led them to weep now also led them to be full of joy. So what was it then that they heard? Well, I think it's summed up in what Nehemiah says to them when he says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now listen, he didn't say joy is your strength. Like we can just switch it on and off like a faucet. You and I know we can't just do that. You can't just switch it on. Not when you're not feeling so good about yourself or about the situation that you find yourself in. We can't just turn that on and off, can we? It's not what he says there. No, he says, it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. It's the Lord's joy. It's God's joy that is our great strength. Now, why? What does God take great joy in? Us. In his people. God took great joy in rescuing his bride from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the land he prepared for them. He took great joy in bringing them back to the land after their exile, in helping them to rebuild the temple and their city. He took great joy, great pleasure, great delight in forgiving them, all their past sins, in saving them, restoring them, giving them a future. This is a God who rejoices in his people. And nowhere do we see this more vividly portrayed than in the prophecy of Zephaniah. And I was amazed to find that um, without any collaboration, what I'm going to read to you was read out during our worship this morning. And in fact, we even sang a song all about these verses. Right? Didn't tell the band this is what I was going to be saying. I think this is something the Lord is wanting to impress on us. Okay? Prophecy of Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a prophet um, who foresaw this time. He starts off actually a little bit gloomy. It's a bit doom and gloom in the beginning. Uh, but he sees a time of great hope for God's people. Uh, in chapter 3 of Zephaniah, um, he foresees this time when God would restore his people from their exile, when he would gather them once again, as we've been seeing right here in Nehemiah 8, and he calls God's people to sing for joy and to rejoice with all his, their hearts. And this is what he says to them in 
in verse 16 of Zephaniah 3. It says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. And as Evan uh, uh, mentioned there, the Hebrew word of, there, God rejoicing over us, suggests um, him literally spinning around with joy, singing over us. I mean, it's just an incredible picture of God rejoicing over his wayward people, right? Taking great delight in being able to demonstrate his love for them, in forgiving them, saving them, restoring them. So full of joy, in fact, he can't contain himself. It just has to overflow in singing. God's singing over his people, rejoicing over them. And you know what? What was true for them is true for us as well. It's no different. God rejoices in you this morning. He's singing over you, singing of his delight in you, singing of his great love for you. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Because we want to protest because we don't feel worthy, right? Because we, we, we know our flaws and failings only too well. We feel undeserving. Maybe you feel unlovable, you know? We want to protest. Don't you know me, Lord? Of course he knows you. He knows everything about you, but he's drowning out our protests or even our weeping with his loud singing. He quietens you with songs of love. So the enemy tries to protest as well. He steps up because he's called the accuser. He loves to bring accusations against God's people. Even this morning as I'm preparing this, I'm hearing these accusations reminding me how I've failed people. Well, a letdown I've been at times. Right, those voices coming in. That's what he does. That's what the enemy does, right? He will remind you, bring up every single thing that you've ever done wrong. And uh, he'll want to remind you of all the things that you regret, the things you're not proud of, the things that you're ashamed of. But you know what? God isn't listening. God's too busy singing. He's too busy singing. He's not listening to those protests. He's singing over you. Drowning out all those other voices with joyful songs of love and affection for you. I have loved you with an everlasting love, says the Lord. Before you were even born, I knew you. And I loved you. And there's nothing that you will do that will ever make me love you less or more than I do right now, says the Lord. I was singing over you when you were born. I'll be singing over you when you die. And I'll be singing with you for all eternity because nothing will ever separate you from my love, says the Lord. I think he sings a little better than that. <laughs> what does it feel like when you know that someone delights in you that much, loves you that much, besotted with you, takes such joy in you, 
And listen, we're not just talking about anyone. My dog delights in me. It's not going to change my life. We're talking about the most important, significant, powerful, meaningful being in all of history and in all the universe, taking great pleasure in you. That's why we don't ever have to be afraid or to be anxious about anything. Listen to it again. Listen to what he says here. Zephaniah says, fear not. I was like, don't be afraid. Don't let your hands grow weak. In other words, don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't be anxious. Why? Because the Lord, your God, is in your midst. He delights in you. He's singing over you. He is for you. He will never give up on you. He will never let you go. He is mighty to save. And that's why the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's our stronghold. It's our security. And listen, if your circumstances today, or if your failings, or those voices in your head ever try to tell you otherwise, go back to Zephaniah 3.17 and read that. Listen to the joy in his voice as he's continually singing over you. Okay, remember the words of Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's say that together. The joy of the Lord is our strength. No wonder the Israelites, having heard the word of the Lord, could go from weeping to rejoicing, right? Here they were at the renewing of their vows. The bride is standing there grief-stricken, ashamed as she considers her past. Yet here is her husband speaking to her. He's not bringing up the past. Instead, he's renewing his vows to her because he hasn't changed his mind. They're the same promises that he made on their wedding day. The promises that he will always keep. He's just as committed to her now as he was then because his love for her has been undiminished. And so holding her hand, if you can imagine, his eyes full of joy, big smile on his face, He's radiating the same love and joy as she would have experienced on their wedding day. Imagine if that's you. Imagine what that would do to you. Imagine the tears. Not tears of grief. Tears of joy. Rachel Gilson uh, wrote about this. She was a gay atheist who came to faith in Christ after reading uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. and uh, She's now a writer and an author uh, written quite a bit about same-sex tra attraction. There's uh, some great uh, insights. And uh, now she works for uh, Crew, uh, the campus ministry in the Northeast. But commenting on Nehemiah, uh, she said this. She said, I'd read Nehemiah 8, expecting to come away with a tidy lesson about the importance of the public reading of Scripture. Instead, I was overwhelmed by who God is a wildly passionate husband whose love looks almost reckless, brimming with joy over his bride. And as she considered this, she said, and I feel strength rise. The strength of not merely being known, but being treasured by the Lord. Being treasured by the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Do you know that in your own life? 
Do you know that kind of joy in your life? I don't know about you, I want to know it more. And I'll tell you what, whatever you know of it, there is more. God is just a fountain of joy. I want to know that more, don't you? How can you know that God feels the same way about you? Well, by hearing and understanding God's word. This incredible story. Listen, not just a list of rules. It's not a list of rules. Not even a maker's instruction for how to live a better life. More like a love story. A story which goes on beyond Nehemiah to give us actually an even greater reason for confidence in God's joy over us. Because you see, when the time was right, the husband himself came and visited that same city of Jerusalem. God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And he longed to gather his bride in his arms, but she turned away from him, as she's done so many times in the past. And so for her sake, and for the sake of all who would come to put their trust in him, Jesus lived a perfectly faithful life on our behalf. As a man, he kept all the vows that we have failed to keep, and then he laid down his life to pay the debt for his wayward bride. No one forced him to do that. He did it all because of love. And so in Hebrews 12:2, it says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. It was because of joy. It was for the joy that he did it. The joy of seeing us washed clean, presented before him, made pure, radiant, his bride for all eternity. Right? Jesus kept our end of the vows for us so that we might be his forever. We did nothing to deserve that. It was all because of his good pleasure. His joy. And when you know that, when you truly know that in your heart, it will be a source of great strength and security for you because you will know there is nothing that you can do that will either increase or decrease His joy, the joy that God feels for you. Right? His pleasure, His delight in you will never, ever change. But if you know that, right, if you truly know that joy in your heart, it will change you. May we all come to know that joy more and more. Amen? As we go through this series, through this year, I pray, let it increase. Let all fear be gone. All pessimism, anxiety, let them melt away as we come to know the Lord more as we enter into his joy. Amen? So now, as we come and take communion together, listen, this is, this is where we can come and bring our confession, right? Um, Maybe you've come to see this morning your need for forgiveness, but you've also been hearing now of God's delight in you, of all that he's done for you. So as we come to break bread, it's not so we can somehow make ourselves right with God. No, it's rather rejoicing that Jesus has already done that for us. Rejoicing with him and in him. Um, and so as we come to break bread, um, that's the order, you see, it's... it's Repentance. In other words, we turn to God. 
But there's then rejoicing as we do that. There's great rejoicing. And then there's recommitment. So we're going to take the bread and juice representing the body and the blood of Christ. Um, we can confess, you know, where maybe we have failed, but we do it knowing that he's forgiven us. He's singing over us. And so we can receive this with joy as we give ourselves afresh to him today. So I want to invite you all to come. Right? Jesus invites you to come to him this morning and to share in his joy. Right? You don't have to be worthy, because none of us are. Right? It's not that you have to be good enough. No, he is good enough for us. Right? He invites you to come. Right? You just have to trust Jesus. That's what qualifies you to come, trusting him. And if that's what you want to do this morning, please come.